One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey Jim, great to be back. Latest edition of The Other Hand. It's been a doozy of a week. Tons going on, economically, financially, politically. I know you've got some stuff from Ireland that you want to talk about. More generally in the Eurozone, we've had purchasing manager surveys, forward-looking indicators of the economy today, also for the States and for the United Kingdom. And to varying degrees, they're showing signs of weakness. And I think we should talk about those. Lots of politics to talk about, not least in the context of the UK. The fallout from Rishi Sunak's abandonment of the environment continues. We've also had other policy announcements in the UK that leave me wondering what on earth is going on. And if you'll permit me a little self-indulgently, I want to talk about really a fond farewell that I want to say to the Welsh economy. So I think today is the day, or this week is the week that we start to finally say goodbye to it as the Welsh government, the Welsh parliament, implements the latest in a whole series of measures that it's been doing really for the last number of years, designed to make sure that Wales no longer has an economy. The upside of that, of course, is that Wales will meet its environmental Uh, zero carbon targets because there will be nobody here emitting any carbon and if you allow me just a minute towards the end to have a little rant about that i know i've just had one but i'd like to have another one there is lots going on in ukraine and political events globally surrounding the ukrainian situation i think are terribly significant we may get time to talk about that markets have been very active financial markets of all kinds equities bonds currencies all moving in very interesting directions this week and not very pleasant directions, actually. We've got further rises in bond yields. You and I have talked about that before. They are the all-important driver of all asset prices, including your house price, Jim, via your mortgage rate. Bond yields have been going up everywhere. The German 
and therefore everybody else's rate in Europe has been reaching highs not seen for many, many years. That finally has been affecting stock markets. Stock markets have been going down this week, not precipitately, but they are showing lots of signs of weakness. And the old correlation between bonds and equities, which is something that market types have talked about for years because it comes and goes, is back, I think. As we speak, for instance, bond yields in the United States have fallen a smidge today. Who knows what they will have done by the end of the day's close. But because bond yields have fallen a smidge, the US equity market's gone up. That's the correlation that I'm talking about that is back. I think it's back with a vengeance. I think these rising bond yields are very sinister. And I'd be very interested in your views. So that's my agenda, Jim. I don't know what else, if anything, you've got on yours. But where would you like to start? Yeah, if I may just touch on piece of Irish data released on Friday, which was the wholesale price index. And there's one element that jumps out, and it's the one that's getting the headlines in Ireland on Friday. The wholesale price of electricity in the year to August fell by 72.5%. Okay, so a very, very significant fall albeit from exceptionally high levels in August of last year. But a couple of points I would like to make. One is that in the month of August, prices actually increased by 10.6%. Okay, so that's reflecting something we've been discussing about global energy prices have been on the up in recent weeks, particularly oil. The other interesting thing is, and we've discussed it on the podcast a number of times, about the relationship between wholesale and consumer electricity prices. And I went back and pulled out as much data as I possibly could on wholesale electricity prices and consumer prices for electricity. Lo and behold, I'm quite confused. Between April 2021 and August 2022, the wholesale price of electricity increased by 353.7% over the same period the consumer price of electricity increased by 49.8%. So that would suggest on the surface that the increase in wholesale electricity prices was not passed on to any extent to the consumer. Okay, and looking at a different time frame between April 21 and December 22, the consumer price of electricity went up by 93.4%. The wholesale price went up by 223%. So something we've discussed about the tardiness with which the energy companies have been passing on higher electricity prices to the consumer. Lower, lower electricity or, prices. Sorry, lower electricity prices. To con- the tardiness in passing on lower electricity prices. Excuse me. It's Friday evening, Chris. I'm tired. There's, there's something going on there. I think yes. there must be some there's some way in which we're not... I share the same perspective on that data that you have. And I think there's something going on that we don't fully understand. Maybe there is an expert out there that could explain this, uh, what looks anomalous to me. Explain it to me. Explain it yeah, to us. There's, there's, there's two things that you have to superimpose on top of this. One is the profits that are being reported by the energy companies. And secondly the hedging that is in place. And of course, the problem is that without having access to the type of hedging that was undertaken, we have no idea really on how to conduct this type of analysis. But uh, what I do think it points to the fact that over the coming months, there is not going to be a consumer or business bonanza in terms of a sharp decline in 
um, energy prices for reasons that I've kind of tried to explain in terms of the price increases we've seen. But I think more particularly what we're seeing now on global energy markets would suggest that consumers and businesses are in for another challenging winter in terms of energy prices. Yeah, over that, the last few weeks, oil and gas prices have gone up, not down. Yeah, absolutely. That so that's could change. Yeah, but, that, but that's something that we, we have to talk about, or sorry, we have to uh, look into in more detail, but the lack of data is a problem. But moving away from that, Chris, as I say, that's the thing that has attracted a lot of headlines here in Ireland today and will over the coming days. Looking at what happened on the interest rate front this week, UK interest rates, a little bit surprisingly from my perspective, were left unchanged, which I think was a slight surprise. The comment that came out from the Monetary Policy Committee was that there is evidence of more persistent inflation pressures. Four members of the nine-member MPC voted for an increase of a quarter of 1%, uh, but they were outvoted. And I think... What influenced this decision more than anything else was that there was a larger than expected decline in inflation um, this week. And secondly, the evidence that continues to come through on the UK economy is pretty weak. But so whether this is the end of the UK rate cycle tightening or not remains to be seen. But it seems clear that we're now in the realms of higher for longer, a theme that's common to Europe and the United States indeed. And that may or may not turn out to be how things develop, because as we keep saying and have said so many times, if you keep as a central banker saying, I'm going to watch the data to tell me whether or not to raise interest rates, to pause or indeed to cut interest rates, you're always going to get it wrong. You're, you're guaranteed to get it wrong because of the lags that are inbuilt in the system, because the effects of your interest rate rises or your interest rate cuts or your no changes in interest rates, the effects of your decisions are not felt for a year or two. So if you're going to do, be reacting today to today's data, by definition, you're always going to get it wrong. Now, of course, they would say, well, it, every time we try to forecast the economy, Chris, you tell us that we can't do it. So what else are we going to do? Well, I can say, sorry, mate, you've got a hard job. It's why you're paid the big bucks. You've got to forecast the economy and you've got to try to anticipate the consequences of your actions. Because with 100% certainty, if you only ever react to today's data, you'll get it wrong every single time. But if you try to forecast what, what the effects of your actions are going to be, try to anticipate, there is at least a chance, a chance that you'll get it right. You might still get it wrong, but I think it's been fairly clear for a little while now that the lagged effects of their past rate rises are now starting to come through on both sides of the Atlantic, but particularly in Europe and that things are slowing down. And I think today's PMI data speaks to that. We've got quite a weak Europe. Uh, the, the R word is being muttered as a possibility for the Eurozone or some parts of it, definitely being spoken out loud in the context of the UK, where the service sector, which is 80-85% of the economy, that forward-looking indicator is saying that the economy contracted in the most recent period. And in the United States, the composite PMI, the thing that tries to anticipate the overall economy, was flatlining at 50, which, as you have explained so many times, suggests that things are neither expanding or contracting. I think it was 50.2, actually, but we'll call it 50. So even in the US, things have softened a little. I think they've softened quite a bit in Europe and quite a lot 
in the UK. And that's the lagged effects of interest rate rises coming through. So why would you put interest rates up in that environment, Jim? Well, exactly, Chris. And there was UK retail sales data published Friday morning for August. There was an increase of 0.4% in the month, which would suggest a reasonable level of consumer activity. However, if you look at what happened in July, it was an exceptionally wet July. Uh, I was over there for some of it, and I can certainly attest to that fact. But retail sales fell by 1.1%. So there is a very small rebound after desperate month. And it, it certainly does point to a pretty subdued UK economy. Uh, you're absolutely correct on the euro area. Most pieces of economic data we're seeing are suggesting, number one, that the eurozone economy at best is now flatlining and the risks are certainly on the downside. And within that, the German economy certainly is in significant trouble at the moment and is is, is in technical recession. So riddle um, me this, Jim. Riddle so me why this. would you increase interest rates? Absolutely. Similar sort of question to which I don't have an answer. So forgive me if you think it's an unfair question, but it's a genuine question. I'm puzzled. Given all of this economic weakness, and we haven't had any bad news on inflation, we haven't had any great news on inflation, admittedly. So the news on inflation has been pretty neutral. And we've had bad news on economic growth. And the cost of government borrowing, those famous bond deals that I was talking about earlier on, are largely a function of growth expectations and inflation expectations. So growth is coming down. Inflation expectations are stable. Why are bond yields going up? Yeah, I mean, the US 10-year on Thursday night went above 4.5% for the first time since 2007. Um, and they, the, the market, you know, the way the market always creates a narrative to explain something it wasn't quite expecting. But um, the, the explanation being given is that bond yields spiked because of the realization that interest rates are going to remain higher for longer. Uh, that that yeah. is the explanation that's being given at the moment. That's, uh, in but, my opinion, is pure BS. That, as I you say, so that's just that's narrative absolutely. after the fact. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because higher for longer interest rate outlook would suggest a weaker than expected economic outturn, which in turn should be good for inflation, which in turn actually should be good for bond yields in terms of moving down, I think. And, th- and the forward-looking market, if central banks have given up looking forwards, as I suggested earlier on, Uh, which, of course, they should not have done. The forward-looking market is the bond market. Now, it may well be that some, you know, 12-year-old bond analysts, market strategists are saying that, oh, it's a narrative of higher for longer interest rates. The bond market surely must be a little bit more sophisticated than that. And in fact, I would have thought we'd be blowing a big raspberry at this point. That's the technical term. And saying that with this slowdown in growth, our original thoughts about lower interest rates in 2024 are probably the right ones and that this higher for longer narrative being peddled by all these 12-year-old analysts is a load of BS. What I do know is that higher bond yields are very serious. We've not seen them for years and years and years at these sorts of levels. You mentioned 2007 there in the context of the States. It's a similar kind of time period here in Europe and we've not seen these 10-year, 5-year yields at these sorts of levels for a very, very long time. And these bond yields affect everything. And it's uh, potentially a real problem. But can I tell you why I don't think it's a real problem? Can I tell you why I think this is all hot air? It goes back to to that first point we were making, the growth is coming off the top. And I do think that that's going to sort at least part of the problem. The other is I sniff all of those hedge funds, commodity trading advisors, all those trend following people out there 
who are making very leveraged one directional bets on these markets. And it's a bit of a bubble. It's a bit of a bandwagon, if you like, and that it's just as likely to reverse as not. I actually suspect the oil price is in a similar kind of bandwagon effect and is likely to reverse sometime sooner or later. Those are my instincts in terms of forecasting, dare I say, where these things are going to go. So I'm putting my colours to the mast here, Jim. I've got one big call wrong this week. I thought that the Bank of England would raise rates. I'm delighted that they haven't. So I'm actually delighted to be wrong on that one. But in the spirit of making forecasts that will probably be wrong, I think that the rise in bond yields, the rise in the oil price um, is overdone. And it's being overdone by leveraged market participants. Yep, hard to disagree with that. There is, apart from the bond discussion we've just had, there's a lot of other stuff going on in financial markets. This morning, the Bank of Japan left interest rates unchanged. And the, the markets really have been hoping for some time that the Bank of Japan would increase interest rates, but no sign of that happening. But uh, it's, it's, this is a currency relationship that I looked at a lot in a past life. I haven't looked at it in ages, but I looked at the dollar-yen exchange rate this afternoon. It's now uh, over 148.20. The yen is absolutely falling out of bed at the moment. So anybody with investments, unhedged investments in Japanese equities or bonds has been absolutely creamed by the fall in the exchange rate. Japanese equities have been riding high in yen terms, but not so high in dollar or euro terms. And so it just goes to show you need to pay attention to currencies. Another currency that has been weak, not anywhere near as weak as the yen, of course, is the pound sterling. That's been softening all week, particularly on the back of the Bank of England's decision not to raise interest rates. So we have a bit of sterling weakness that, if anything, I think is likely to continue. Oh my God, I'm forecasting again. I do think that because of the weak UK economy, its desperate political situation, uh, I think that sterling deserve, deserves to be a lot weaker than it is. I've thought that for some time, and so clearly have been wrong. Um, but I do urge caution to anybody thinking about sterling-based investments. Think about your currency risk, I think, is important advice. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Chris, another forecast that I'd like to drag you into is the euro-dollar exchange rate relationship. Um, it's at 106.64 at the moment. It had been threatening to breach 110 in recent weeks and now appears to be going in the other direction. So where do you see that exchange rate relationship going? 
Well, I think there's a huge tension because of that differential growth rate between the United States and Europe. I think the US economy is in great shape for all sorts of reasons, partly due to Joe Biden's CHIPS and IRA acts, partly due to the fact that the US has got some great companies that are the main sources of economic growth these days. And Europe doesn't have any of those things. I think that we're going back to our days, Jim, when we started out in the game working together. By the game, I do mean economics. And I need to be very clear here about what game we're talking about, don't I? <laughs> that uh, if you remember, Jim, back in the day, pre-Brexit and all that kind of nonsense, you and I were quite Eurosceptical, not in the sense of wanting Ireland or anybody else to leave the, the EU, not, nothing like that, but we were very sceptical about the economic policies being pursued by national governments and by the Euro area as a whole. And this is even before the Euro came into existence in the good old days when it was called the EEC. And I think we're, in, in some ways, we're, we're going back to that sort of era in which we're going to wonder about the, the, the success or otherwise lack of success of pursuing economic growth in Europe. I, I, I sense a return back to those days where we wonder where, where is the growth in Europe going to come from? Its demographics are horrible. It doesn't innovate. Governments everywhere are distracted or not interested in economic growth to a greater or lesser extent. So uh, I think that's a huge contrast between the United States and Europe and one that could end up with a significantly stronger dollar. Yeah, I mean, that that's where I was going, because three months ago, the dollar was weakening significantly against the euro. As I say, it was threatening to go through 110 and appeared to be headed in one direction. And the whole narrative around the eurozone economy has changed significantly over the last three months. And we've described the economic data we've seen uh, very recently and spoken about the Eurozone economy skirting with a recession and so on, whereas the States is still growing at a reasonable pace. Um, and, and you'd have to say that um, all of the arguments at the moment would appear to point towards a stronger dollar. So per perhaps we're headed back down to parity again. Uh, but who knows? Because the one thing we should have learned over the years, Chris, is that of all the things we try and forecast, exchange rates are probably the most notoriously difficult. There are so many different factors that impact. Well, one of the things I would say, Jim, is that we have proven to be very wise because I think both of us at different points in our career have been paid to make exchange rate forecasts and we are no longer paid to make exchange rate <laughs> forecasts for very good reason. For a very good reason. I remember, Chris, years and years ago when I started working in economics uh, with AIB, I was sent to Geneva to do a course for a week on exchange rate forecasting. So for four and a half days, we were taken through these incredibly sophisticated mathematical models for forecasting exchange rates and, you know, purchasing power parity theory, all of that stuff built in. And then at lunchtime on the Friday, um, a practitioner from Goldman Sachs. David Morrison. Exactly. Came into us and said, Folks, you've spent the last four and a half days going through all of these really sophisticated models of exchange rate forecasting. Um, as a practitioner, I can assure you none of them work. David's famous for two things in my book. One is for the way in which he left Goldman Sachs. As you know, when people leave uh, particularly financial services firms under all sorts of different circumstances, they say they are leaving to spend more time with their family. And David famously said at the time, this was a long time ago, I'm leaving to spend more time with my Ferraris. And the second thing that he did that is, I think, even more memorable is that that very course that he used to teach on, one year he couldn't do it. 
And even though I worked for a competitor firm in London, I was known at the time as a very good currency forecaster. God help me. And UBS, he, yeah. Uh, he invite yes, I was at UBS at the time, and he uh, arranged for me to be his substitute teacher on that final Friday of the of the occasion. And I realised that even though I was working in the city, and there were lots of plenty wealthy people in the city at the time, that the boss of this centre for Geneva Centre for Money and Banking or something it was yeah. called at the time, I'm not sure what it's called now. I still have the folder. He came up for lunch and for my session in the afternoon, flew his own airplane up from his island in the Mediterranean to attend the, this was the boss of the school. Anyway, we, we digress seriously, we Jim. We do digress. Chris, where I'd like to drag you now is something you write about every week, and that's the Ukraine situation. Because, uh, And I want to give you a chance to talk about Wales before we finish. But just to summarize, as I see the Ukraine situation this week, some significant developments this week. Ukraine complained to the World Trade Organization because Hungary, Poland, Slovakia banned the imports of grain or threatened to ban the imports of grain. They said it was distorting their domestic market. Ukraine retaliated, threatening to put a ban on Polish onions, apples and Hungarian cars. I actually didn't know the Hungarians made cars. Um, and Poland has retaliated by threatening to halt its supply of arms to Ukraine. And of course, what's going on here in Poland particularly is that there is an election on October 15th. The Law and Justice Party, which is the ruling party at the minute, has a very strong farmer support base. So this is this political party playing to its electorate. But it does tell us, um, I think, something kind of um, nervous about the way this support for Ukraine is going at a global level, because in the United States, uh, Joe Biden has just announced a military aid package of $325 million, mainly on defense systems and cluster munitions. He has um, not gone as far as the long range uh, missiles that uh, Zelensky is looking for, but still it's a substantial package $325 million. But a lot of Republicans are deeply unhappy about it and try to block it. So do you sense that the solidarity globally behind Ukraine is starting to creak? And if so, what are the implications? It's starting to fracture, Jim. And it's definitely the case in various ways. You've just described the two most obvious ones there. Going back to my point about being Eurosceptic, one of the things that you might be ex able to explain to me, somebody with your such, dare I say, agricultural background as a, as a younger person, one of the things that we British economists for many years, when Britain was part of the EEC, EU and all the rest of it, we could never really get our heads around, was the financial and economic uh, and emotional attachment that many European governments feel towards their farming communities. It's, it exists. You can touch it in France. It's, it's clearly there. And you've just described the importance of agriculture in certain Eastern European countries. And I know that agriculture has been very important in Ireland for a long period of time. But it's just not the case here in the UK. Yes, farmers are valued, but it's, they, there's not that kind of attachment. They don't drive policy in the way that farmers seem to be able to drive policy in many European countries. What's happened is that Ukraine was one of the world's biggest grain exporters. Most of the grain went by ship through the Black Sea, and Russia has stopped those ships from sailing, or at least most of them. 
and the grain has to go somewhere. It either rots in silos or in the fields, or it has to go by train through the border with Eastern Europe. When the grain enters these countries, it depresses prices because they get, some of it tends to get sold on those markets and indeed onward markets. It all Everything is linked to everything else. And the farmers have kicked off and said that they don't want this grain appearing on, and other agricultural products appearing in their local markets. It's depressing prices. It's unfair competition. Stop it. And some governments have reacted. The Polish government reacted this week by saying not only are they going to stop the grain shipments if they can, they are also going to stop arm, Polish arms shipments to Ukraine, which is very serious. That story was subsequently denied and clarified that what they meant originally was Polish manufactured arms. 90% of Western arms go through Poland. So if they were going to stop arms shipments, that was going to be very serious. There's no suggestion of that. It should be emphasized. So the famous European solidarity with Ukraine is, fra is fracturing, definitely. And I think that has potential to be very serious indeed. In the United States, the Republican Party is becoming pro-Putin. There's absolutely no doubt about this in my mind. They are moving to be supporters of Russia. And that's mostly being driven by Donald Trump. And uh, of course, they do not say this, but you should know people by what they do rather than what they say. Their actions to uh, try and stop the flow of cash and arms to Ukraine speaks to that. Uh, the failure of the speaker, who is this invertebrate called Kevin, what's his name? McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy, uh, long since uh, lost, if ever he had a, a moral uh, compass or any kind of a backbone whatsoever. Zelensky was not allowed to address the make a joint address to Congress, which is what happened last time. Uh, the successors, to the, the party that is, you know used to be the party of Lincoln, the party of Ronald Reagan. Can you imagine Ronald Reagan not allowing Zelensky to make a joint address to Congress? Can you imagine Ronald Reagan not standing up to Putin? Uh, it, it is it is worrying. It is sinister. It's uh, but part of a peace, Jim. It's the way the world is going. The world is splitting into, uh, frankly, pro and anti-Putin camps. Um, the demonstrators, only 200 of them outside uh, the Oireachtas this week in Dublin. Have I used that right word correctly? That did, my attempt at a bit of Irishness there. Did uh, I yeah, have, Chris? I'll give it to you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, they're pro Putin. I mean, the, the, it's, it's everywhere, it's even in Ireland. Now, obviously, it's not nearly as prevalent in Ireland as it is in the United States, but this is way, the way things are going. And uh, the situation on the front line is that it's static. The offensive didn't work in the way that it was originally planned. We think it has regained about one quarter of 1% of occupied territory, uh, occupied Ukraine by Russia. So in terms of territory we regained, it's nothing. Um, but it, it, it isn't absolutely nothing. There is a development in the western Zaporizhia Oblast, um, which is at the southern end of the line, which there are signs just in the last 24, 48 hours that Ukrainian heavy armor has been seen beyond the third line of Russia's tri-line defensive system that's been built by a Russian general called Sorovakin. So it is called the Sorovakin Line. He's one of those generals that were purged in the wake of Yevgeny Prigozhin's uh, death, assassination, shall we call it. 
So if there is armor, as the Institute for the Study of War, which is a great site to follow in all of this, thinks that it's spotted Ukrainians operating behind the third line, that's significant in military terms at least. Whether it's sustained or not remains an open question. Whether they can broaden it away out of this very narrow point is an open question. But the success of the counteroffensive may be about to accelerate as a result of that. So it's a very complicated picture. Most people conclude that it's settling down to be a forever war. What do we mean by that? It means that there's no obvious end in sight and that the tactics being deployed by Ukraine haven't worked um, anywhere near as successfully as previously hoped and that Vladimir Putin is just waiting for his mate Donald to regain the White House. And that's that's where we're at. Yeah, you 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 make a lot of interesting points there too. I'd pick up on one is Kevin McCarthy. He has the spinal cord of a jellyfish. Um, he sold his soul when he became Speaker of the House. He basically handed himself over to uh, the extreme, the Trumpian wing of the Republican Party to do with him whatsoever they desired. That's exactly what they're doing at the moment. It's mad stuff. Um, and it's, 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 it's kind of frightening in the context of the US political system. Um, in relation to the love of farmers in Europe, um, we saw the ploughing championship happening in Ireland or the ploughing show, whatever they call it, happening in Ireland this week. And apart from being rained out of it and flooded, um, the, the, the main topic of conversation was the attempts by the European Union to um, remove from Ireland some of the derogation on nitrates. And um, that, excuse me, that would imply um, curbs to production on Irish farms. So it's, it's causing massive consternation here. But I remember Ray McSharry, who was Minister for Finance in the 87 government under Hawhey, um, who arguably was one of the most successful finance ministers we've ever had because he did succeed in turning the economy around in a significant way from a situation of crisis. He went on to be European Commissioner for Agriculture. But I remember him telling me a story when he was commissioner he was in France with his family on holidays. He came around a corner and they were burning effigies of him on the side of the road, the French farmers. So it just shows you that the, the attachment that Europeans have with farmers, and you're, you're correct, it certainly does not exist to anything like that in the United Kingdom. Going back to the United Kingdom, Chris, Wales, tell me about it. Wales has been going backwards since devolution, since the Welsh Labour Party took, took office in 1999. I worked for them for 10 years in a pro bono capacity between 2002 and 2012. I thought I'd at least get an OBE, if not a knighthood, for this, for this pro bono work for, for the Welsh Assembly, as it was called back then. It's called the Welsh Parliament or the Welsh Senate. Now they have been very self-aggrandizing in terms of the titles that they give to themselves. And the Welsh economy under the, the, the Welsh Labour Party has become a one-party state. And as one-party states everywhere tend to go, they tend to go nowhere, if not backwards. And so relative to all sorts of important benchmarks, not least what's been happening in England, things like the Welsh NHS, which is a, called a devolved competency, and the Welsh education system, similarly, is a competency of the Welsh government, has gone backwards. You should know a political organization or anybody really by what they do rather than what they say. The Welsh government, from my direct experience and from indirect observation over the last number of years, 
isn't remotely interested in the economy. They say they are. Of course they do. They say that we do this, that, and the other for the economy, but they don't care about the economy. They care about one thing and one thing only, which is the Welsh language. And that's the only thing that they prioritise. That's the only thing that they really spend money on. They clearly don't care about the economy, the NHS, or the education system because they don't do anything about it, and they've just presided over it going backwards. The latest dumb initiative in a long list of dumb initiatives perpetrated by this thing called the Welsh Parliament is to introduce a speed limit on most Welsh roads of 20 miles an hour. I can tell you that Cardiff has instantly become like Bangkok. If ever you've tried to get around Bangkok at any time of day or night, it's gridlock 24-7. Cardiff has instantly gone to this level of traffic jam thing. They claim it's about safety. They claim it's about pollution. Uh, my sojourn in Cardiff just only today will tell you, I can tell you that pollution has gone up because every single car is sitting there idling, going nowhere very, very slowly. Um, and I think pollution levels have risen. I think there have been several deaths due to high blood pressure over the last few days of motorists sitting in this gridlock. So I'm not sure that the data is going to support their safety allegations. But the one thing that you can see in all this traffic are the white vans, the delivery vans, the shoppers, the people going about business, not just about, you know, being travelers, uh, grinding to a halt. This will have a massive deleterious impact on the Welsh economy. And you know what? I think they're going to love it because one thing about driving economic activity out of Wales means that they're going to meet their green zero emission targets because by definition if you don't have an economy you don't have any carbon emissions so ergo they're going to be very happy that they're going to have a land of three or four people left in it all of whom speak welsh and don't emit any carbon christopher it's been a pleasure talking to you uh, do have a great weekend and uh, see you next week cheers buddy You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 